All right, good morning. Have you ever had a situation where you tried to warn someone about something and they didn't listen to you and then it went bad and then you felt bad, like you wish that you could have said it better, you wish you could have been more persuasive or you would have said it one more time? Have you ever been in that situation where you felt bad that they didn't listen to your warning? Well, today's sermon might help with that, and hopefully it will help in some other ways also. Um, this is Life of Paul, Series 2. We have been focusing on the second missionary journey that was taken by Paul, who was an apostle, missionary, and preacher in the New Testament. He was going from city to city to city, telling people about Jesus in the first century. And so this is his second journey, and this morning's called Part 12, Corinth B, which should give you a hint of where we're, what, what this is. It, last week was what? Yeah, Corinth A. And so Corinth is the name of the city that Paul visited. That's where we got the Corinth from. A and B are just because this is how, that's the amount of time it's taken us, the number of sermons it's taking us to get through it. So last week, um, we learned about Paul showing up in a town called Corinth. And we covered, in, in last week's sermon, we covered what took place in Corinth during the first, I don't know, the first several weeks that Paul was there. And then this week, we are now moving on to the next part of the story. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you um, starting with last week's verses and then move into this week's verses. So hopefully as I read it, you will, at least if you were here last week, I'm hoping you will read it and go, oh yeah, yeah, I know what these verses mean. And then we'll get to the point where we get to the new stuff. So this is Acts 18, starting in verse 1 and going to verse 11. After this, he, that's Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jewish man named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them and being of the same occupation, stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. <clears throat> he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with preaching the message and solemnly testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Does all that sound familiar? Okay, here we go. Keep going. Verse 6. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook his robe and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking, and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Wow, well, the first thing I want to point out is that Paul spent a significant amount of time in Corinth. Right? This, this sentence right here sticks out as different than all of the other cities that came before him in all of these journeys. If you've been following us all the way along, you know this, right? Most of the cities that Paul, you know, he goes to Lystra and he goes to Iconium and he goes to Philippi and he goes to Thessalonica and he goes to Berea. And almost, I think every single story has not said the specific amount of time he stayed. But we've been assuming as we've gone along, probably a few weeks, probably a, a couple of months at the most the, in most of these cities. Um, in fact, the fact that it finally gets to this city and says he stayed there for a year and six months, I think is a huge hint. That means all of the other cities up to this point, probably he stayed in like less than a year and six months. That's why the remark is made in this one and not in the other ones. So he's going from city to city, spending a few weeks there, spending a few months there, and then he gets to Corinth and he stays a year and a half. And this is quite a bit different than what we think of as a mission trip, isn't it? 
like a year and a half. Like we, this part of the story, we call it Paul's second missionary journey, right? He's journeying through Corinth. But there comes a point where you got to be like, it's kind of not a journey. It's sort of like he lived there. We have to admit that, right? Like, I, I don't know. I guess there's a fine line between, like, how do you know how long that you stay at a place? Between, what's the difference between like visiting and like moving there? Like, how long do you have to be there before you go like, well, I guess I'm not visiting. I guess I live here, right? I, I don't know. I don't know what that number is. I'm just saying a year and six months, I think that means you moved there, right? I think, he, I think he lived in Corinth. And I had forgotten about this. I had read this. I had taken notes on this back in January when I was thinking about this series um, coming up. And so I, I, I knew this, but I forgot about it. And so uh, um, six sermons ago, I was preaching to you guys about the Philippians, and I talked about how Paul was in Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, in Acts chapter 16, and that the next time he went back to Macedonia was in Acts chapter 20. And I don't know if you remember, but I said between Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 20, um, at least two years had gone by. Okay, I don't know if you remember that, but I said to you at the time, the reason I know that two years must have gone by is because in between Acts 16 and Acts 20, um, there was a period of time where he stayed in, for two years in Ephesus. So if he was just in that one city for two years, then of course there had to be at least two years between Acts 16 and Acts 20. Uh, then I came across this passage this week and went, whoa, I was, I was off. I mean, I was, it was correct. I said over two years. It was over two years. Because I now look and I go, not only was there two years then, but there's a year and six months here, and there's another place where there's three months. And if you put it all together, the amount of time between Acts 16 and Acts 20 was probably, probably over four years. Okay, so... If I ever get to re-preach that sermon, I'm going to fix it. <laughs> but I'm fixing it now for you guys. So my opening observation, though, is that Paul spent a long time in Corinth. In fact, it dawned on me this week, it could be that he spent more time in Corinth than his home church, like the thing we're calling his home church. Because if you go back to where the story began, um, Paul was the, the pastor of this, um, or one of the pastors in a city called Antioch. Do you remember that way back early on? Uh, there were Christians that showed up in Antioch. They told other people about Jesus. Then you ended up having a group of Christians. And it's like, what do we do with all these Christians? And so Barnabas went there and sort of became their pastor and needed help. And so we went and got Paul and then Paul helped him. And Paul and Barnabas preached the word of God there in Antioch, it says in the book of Acts, for a whole year. And then the next part of the story is that they were sent off on a missionary journey. So I'm assuming that Paul was you know, the pastor of this church or one of the pastors of this church in Antioch for a year and then went off on his missionary journey. So he goes off on missionary journey number one, however long that took. He goes back home to Antioch and spends an undisclosed amount of time there. Doesn't say how much time he spent there the second time. And then he went on the second journey. And here we are now in the second journey and he stays here for a year and six months. And I was just thinking, wow, in Antioch, he was there for one year plus a little more. And here he's in Corinth for a year and six months. And I realized like he may have spent more time here in this one church than he did in his home church. So this is a significant part of the story. He spends a lot of time in Corinth. Let me go ahead and summarize the story for you. And I'm going to start with like re-summarizing what we said last week. So just putting it all together, all the verses I just read to you. Paul shows up in Corinth. He becomes friends with Priscilla and Aquila. They make tents together. And he reasons in the synagogue with the Jewish people telling them about Jesus. Timothy and Silas show up. And we know from other books of the Bible, they probably showed up with money. It looks like money showed up right around this time from other churches, perhaps Philippi, probably Philippi. Um, and um, so now Paul's able to preach full time in verse five. He's able to occupy himself with preaching the message. So then we get to verse six, which is the new stuff. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook his robe and told them, your blood is on your own heads, I'm innocent. So he's trying to tell the Jewish people about Jesus, but at some point they resist and they blaspheme. That's a word that can mean like to be abusive either to him or to God. 
And so he shook his robe, right? He said, I'm done with you guys, okay? I'm going to move on to the Gentiles. And shook his robe, I think, well, it's a gesture, obviously. What does it mean to shake your robe? I think in this context, shake your robe means the same thing as what I just did, okay? Like we, like we do that. I think he shook his robe to say, I'm done with you. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he leaves them and decides, I'm going to minister to the Gentiles from now on. And then the next thing that happens, I think is funny. I don't think, I mean, Luke didn't write it in a funny way. I just think it's funny that it happened, okay? He leaves to go to minister to the Gentiles. And where does he go? Next door. How hilarious is that? Okay, so... So I'm picturing the situation like this. Here he's in the synagogue, okay, and he's telling the people um, about Jesus, and they're going, yeah, you bring up Jesus every single Saturday, and we really don't want to hear about it anymore. We don't think he's the Messiah. No, he really is the Messiah, right? And he's preaching to them, whatever it is, you've got to turn from your sins. You've got to believe in him. He's going to come back. He's going to be the judge on the throne one day that judges all of us. And, and so at some point, they go, we don't want to hear this anymore. They're throwing tomatoes at him or whatever it is they're doing. But they're like, we are, we are over this. We are done. Stop telling us about Jesus. And at some point, he goes, okay, fine. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he does what? He walks one building over and starts ministering to the Gentiles. Isn't that hilarious? Look at the verse. So it's verse, it's verse seven. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So as best as I could tell, Titius Justice is kind of the equivalent of Lydia in Philippi and Jason in Thessalonica. That when Paul goes to these towns, it seems like fairly early on, he meets someone who converts to Christianity and says, you can use my house. And so this is probably the house that was like Paul's headquarters for ministry in this town. It probably was the house, I'm guessing, that when there were people that became Christians and they started meeting for church, it would, this, this was the church building, right? Titius Justice's house. And it's next door to the synagogue. So I'm just guessing the synagogue people, when, when he said, I'm leaving, I'm sure they were like, that's great. And I bet you they were hoping he would have walked a little farther than what he did, right? That he went next door. How annoying must that have been? How frustrating that must have been? I, I don't know much about like building quality back then, but I'm just thinking it's probably not the same kind of buildings as are. And so it, it dawned on me this week, it's possible that they could still hear him, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't know how far away next door is and I don't know what the building materials were, but I'm just saying he was there and then he goes next door and if he's in Titius Justice's backyard teaching these people about Jesus, I can picture these people in the synagogue going, hey, I'm so glad he left us so we don't have to hear the gospel anymore. And like we can still hear, he, we can still hear the guy saying the same stuff he said here just a few steps over there. So they must have been so frustrated. And then to add insult to injury, their leader joined him. Their leader joined Paul. Look at verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed the Lord along with his whole household. So not only does Paul go next door and start his Gentile ministry, but the leader of the synagogue says, I'm going with him. And that guy walks next door. I don't know if all that happened in one day, but I'm just saying that's, that's, the, that's the account we have here. And Crispus may have been somewhat like influential. Maybe that set off a chain reaction because if you look, it says many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. And I'm sure the people in the synagogue next door viewed Paul and what was going on in Titius Justice's house as like a competitor religion. I'm sure they didn't want him next door. I bet you they were frustrated. And if that's true, then the next verse makes sense. Because look what verse 9 says. Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid. Why? Well, I don't know. Anytime God like, speaks to you in a vision, maybe he needs to start with don't be afraid because maybe it's scary. But it could also be that Paul was afraid, right? 
here I'm doing my ministry and I got a group of people that hate me next door. And he has not had, like, he's not had pleasant experiences up to this point, right? If you think about what's happened in all the other towns, what usually happens is he shows up and, and there's a riot. He's used to that happening and you get kicked out of town or he gets thrown in prison or he gets stoned almost to death. Like this stuff has happened over and over again. And here he is preaching about Jesus next door to the synagogue that has rejected him. And he's probably thinking it's happening all over again. Like this is what happens in every city I go to. And it's just, I, I only ever last a few weeks because this happens every time. And God appears to him and says, no, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Maybe he was tempted to get quieter. Maybe he was tempted to talk less. But God says, for I am with you. How comforting must that have been to hear? I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you. Now, that's different than the other cities before this one, right? No one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. Yes, I know it's not worked out in a lot of the other cities, but I'm telling you in this case, like I'm revealing to you, they're not going to hurt you here. I got a lot of people in the city. I got a lot for you to do here. It's going to work out this time. And so Paul stays there for a year and a half. And so that's our story this morning. And as far as talking about how it applies to our life, I'd like to talk about the applications of this um, under two headings. I want to talk about our responsibility and I want to talk about God's encouragement. Okay? Our responsibility, God's encouragement. And let's start with our responsibility. What does this passage teach us about our responsibilities? For that, let's go to verse 6. This is where he's in the synagogue just before he goes next door. It says, When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook his robe. We already talked about what that meant, right? And he told them what? He said, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now that phrase, from now on, does not mean like forever, okay? He's not saying, and I will never share the gospel with a Jewish person ever again. I'm only going to talk to Gentiles from this point on. If you can tell from the way the book of Acts is written, from now on means from now on in Corinth, like, while I'm in this city, I am no longer focused on you. I'm going to be focused on the Gentiles. He's not saying for the rest of his life. And the way you know this is the very next city that he goes to after this one, which is Ephesus, the first thing he does in Ephesus is, you want to guess? Goes to the synagogue and tells the Jewish people about Jesus. So he's just saying, in, in this city, I'm, I'm done with you guys. I'm moving on to the Gentiles here. But he uses this interesting phrase. He says, your blood is on your own head. What does that mean, to have your blood on your head? Um, it's a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech that goes back to the Old Testament. I don't know if it's even older than the Old Testament or not, um, but it's in the Old Testament multiple times. I looked it up. You can look up this stuff on Bible Gateway or Bible Hub, and I noticed there's a lot of different places in the Old Testament and in some in the New where this phrase, your blood is on your head, is used. So this is, a, this is probably a common phrase, and they understood what it meant. And there's multiple places I could show you in the Old Testament where you can see like, how this word is used, that your blood is on your head, this phrase, this figure of speech, your blood is on your head. But I think Ezekiel 33 is the best one. Ezekiel 33 uses the phrase, and it seems to use it sort of in the same way that Paul is using it here. And so I wanted to read it to you. Ezekiel chapter 33, starting in verse 1. Um, I don't know a lot about Ezekiel. I've not studied it in depth. I mean, I think I've read through it, but that's it. So I'm just jumping right into the middle of Ezekiel. But this particular chapter seems to start a new thought, so I think it's okay that we just jump right into chapter 33. I think this should make sense on its own. Ezekiel 33, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, right? The me there being Ezekiel. 
And then it's this phrase, son of man, which I think son of man is, is God speaking to Ezekiel. Son of man, speak to your people and tell them, suppose I bring the sword against a land and the people of that land select a man from among them, appointing him as their watchman. And he sees the sword coming against the land and blows his trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet but ignores the warning and the sword comes and takes him away, what's the phrase? His blood will be on his own head, right? Isn't that interesting? So what is he saying here? He's saying, okay, this, this, and I think he's using an illustration. You'll see it's an illustration that he's going to apply to something else in a minute. In a minute. It's a military illustration. So he's saying, suppose the sword is coming, and the sword here is a metaphor for like a, a foreign army, an invading army. The invading army is coming. So there's a guy up in the tower, he's watching, and his job is to tell people the bad guys are coming, okay? Somebody's job is to blow the trumpet and say the British are coming, or whatever it was in this case, okay? The Assyrians are coming, all right? So somebody's job is to say the Assyrians are coming, the Assyrians are coming, and so the guy's up there, right? And he blows the trumpet to warn the people. Now, if the people ignore it, if he warns them and says, the bad guys are coming, the bad guys are coming, and everyone goes, eh, and just keeps going on with their day. God says, well, their blood is on their own head. In other words, obviously the bad guys are going to come in and kill them all, and it's their fault. Like, they didn't heed the warning. They didn't prepare, right? The, the, the fact that they died is kind of their responsibility because they were warned, and they did nothing. Okay, so, that's, so now verse 5. Since he heard this, oh yeah, so, so this is like, what, what does it mean? His blood is on his own head, verse five. Since he, so this is what it means. His blood is on his own head because he heard the sound of the trumpet but ignored the warning. His blood is on his own hands. If he had taken warning, he would have saved his life, right? So he's saying, this is just an illustration we understand as far as like responsibility goes. The guy in the tower is responsible to watch to see if the bad guys are coming. He says the bad guys are coming. At that point, the people who hear the trumpet blast and hear the warning, they are responsible to do something about it, right? And if they don't, then their blood is on their own head. And then verse six, here's a different scenario. However, if the watchman sees the sword coming but doesn't blow the trumpet so that the people aren't warned and the sword comes and takes away their lives, then they have been taken away because of their iniquity, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood, right? The, the blood is on the, the watchman's head. So you can see there's this, this understanding of responsibility when it comes here. If the people ignore the warning, then it's on them. But if the warning is never given, if the guy never blows the trumpet, if the guy never tells them, then he is the one responsible. He is the one accountable for all the bloodshed that's about to happen, right? That they, didn't, that they weren't able to defend themselves. Now that's the illustration. That's sort of the military you know, illustration that God uses. Then he applies it to Ezekiel's life, verse 7. As for you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked, wicked one, you will surely die. But you do not speak out to warn him about his way. That wicked person will die for his iniquity, yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn a wicked person to turn from his way, and he doesn't turn from it, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have saved your life. So he takes this military analogy and then applies it to the prophet Ezekiel. He says, Ezekiel, I got some stuff you need to say. You need to tell the people of Israel they're in sin. You need to tell them judgment is coming. You need to tell them they're evil and God's going to do something about it, right? That I'm going to do something about it. He says, if you tell the people and they ignore you, okay, then that's not on you. But if you don't tell the people, that's on you. 
And the phrase, in, within this, we see the phrase, his blood will be on his own head. So we go back to Acts 18, verse 6. I think that is exactly the same way Paul is using the phrase. When, he, <clears throat> when they resisted and blasphemed, in other words, when they heard the trumpet blast and said, no, thank you, when they heard the warning and rejected it, he shook his robe and told them, your blood is on your own heads. And that's why, the, look what he says after that. I am innocent. Why is he saying I'm innocent? Because prior to telling you, like I, I had this responsibility. I needed to tell you that judgment was coming. I needed to tell you to turn to Jesus. I now have, you now have rejected me. Your blood is on your own head, but not me, not on my head. I am innocent. He's using it the same way that it's being used in Ezekiel. Now you might say, okay, what does that have to do with our responsibility? That's, that's Paul's responsibility, but what, did, what does that have to do with our responsibility? Well, I think that there are three principles that come out of this language, whether, whether we're talking about your blood is on your own heads, I am innocent, or whether we're talking about the way it was phrased in Ezekiel, Ezekiel or Acts. When you look at these phrases, you can see like just implied in them are these three principles. So here they are. Number one, you are responsible for what you hear, Right? You can tell that in Ezekiel. You can tell that in the book of Acts, right? You're responsible for what you hear. The people, the people in the illustration within Ezekiel, they were responsible for the warning, right? Okay, well, we got to do something. We got to get our swords and our shields because the bad guys are coming, right? You're responsible for what you hear. When Ezekiel goes and tells the people, you're wicked, right? God's going to judge you. They're responsible to do something about that because Ezekiel said it to them, right? And once Ezekiel says it to them, now he's not responsible. They are. And then you get to this passage, and, and Paul says, I got to tell you about Jesus, and they say, no, we don't want to hear about him anymore. And so what is it? Okay, your blood's on your own head. In other words, you were responsible. You're responsible for what I just told you. And that's the same thing for you. You are responsible for what you hear. If God tells you something, you're, you must react to it. If God gives you a command, you must obey it. You're responsible for what you hear. Number two, you are responsible to give the message you've been given. That's really obvious, right? The watchman was responsible to, tell, to warn the people in the city. Ezekiel was responsible to prophesy to the people in Israel. Paul was responsible to tell the Jewish people in Corinth that Jesus is the Messiah. And you are responsible to give the message that you've been given. Now, you might say, okay, well, what's the message that I've been given? As best as I can understand it, and as best I can explain it to you quickly, it would be the Great Commission, Jesus Christ, just before he ascended to heaven, one of the last things that he said to his followers was he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and find people who don't know me, help them become people who do. People who don't follow me, help them to become people who do follow me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe everything I commanded you. That's the message we've been given. So we're responsible to give the message. You might go, well, how responsible? Who do I need to tell? When do I need to say it? I don't know. The Great Commission is not written specifically to individuals. It's written in a general way. When I say not specifically to individuals, I mean the Great Commission doesn't say, Bob, you must tell James about Jesus. Right? Rather, it says the church must tell the world about Jesus. And so I can't give you like specific rules Okay, like um, you need to share the gospel with one person who's never heard it before once per week or their blood is on your heads. Like I can't, I can't do that because the passage isn't that specific, but I can say, say I can re-say what the passage says and that is this. We, 
the people of God, have the responsibility of communicating the gospel of God to the world. Each of us doing our part. We have not only the privilege of telling people about Jesus, we have the responsibility. And then the third principle. So you are responsible for what you hear. You are responsible to give the message you've been given. And number three, you aren't responsible for how they respond. That's comforting to me. You're responsible for what you hear. You're responsible to give the message you've been given, but you are not responsible for how the people respond. That's obvious in all the verses we looked at. With the watchman, he blows the trumpet. If the people don't listen and the bad guys come and destroy the city, it specifically says it's not the watchman's fault. He's not responsible for how the people respond. And then it's applied to Ezekiel when it comes to prophesying to the people. If they will not repent of their sins, that's not on you, Ezekiel. As long as you tell them to do it, after that, you're not on the hook anymore. You did your part. And here Paul is, and he says, you've got to turn to Jesus. And they go, we will not. And he says, then your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. I, I am not responsible for what you do with it after I say it to you. And that would, of course, apply to us. We are to tell people about Jesus so that they could become followers of him. But it is not our responsibility to make them believe. That's comforting. It's our job to tell the truth, not to force them to believe it. Now, even as I say that, I, I, that doesn't mean we're not supposed to try hard. Okay, so as you go, oh, okay, so it doesn't really matter what they do with it. I just got to say it. So if I just kind of, if I just make sure it gets said out loud at some point, then I'm free, okay? That is not what I'm saying to you, okay? I am not saying the strategy you should use is going up believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's what you're supposed to do. What? What? You don't want to? Okay. Your blood's on your own head. <laughs> no, no. That's not what I'm saying at all. Of course, of course we're supposed to do the best job that we can, right? If you look at this passage, Paul talked to them. Paul, it says, tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. And he tried multiple times. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, it says, he, could you put verse 4 up? He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks, right? I don't think he just got up there and mumbled something to walk off. He tried his best. Now, there are other passages that say Paul wasn't that great of a speaker, but I bet, I bet you he tried as good as he could. He tried to persuade them as best as he could with the talents that he had. And he didn't just try one time. He didn't just say, I said it out loud. They didn't listen. No, it says he reasoned in the synagogue. What's it say? Every Sabbath. Every Sabbath for how long? I don't know, but obviously not one. Several weeks. He tried several times to tell them about Jesus and persuade them. And then there came a point where they fully rejected him and fully rejected God's message. And get this, when that happened, it wasn't Paul's fault. It wasn't his responsibility. And I believe all of that is true for us. The same applies to you. Your job is to tell people the truth about Jesus Christ. And after that, it's on them. And I think we get this wrong sometimes. I think that I, perhaps wrongly, use the word evangelize to mean more than it really means. Because there are times when I've used the word evangelize, I think where I, I'll say things like, I, I evangelized him, or I didn't evangelize her. And I think what I mean by that, sometimes when I say I evangelized him, what I mean is I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him 
and he responded positively. Like he became a believer in Jesus Christ. So I evangelized him. And then I'll say, oh, I didn't evangelize her. What do I mean by I didn't evangelize her? I think a lot of times I mean I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with her and she didn't respond. You know, she said that's stupid and she walked off. And so I would say, well, and I didn't evangelize her. Well, then what did I do? Well, you didn't evangelize her, you just uh, preached the gospel. But that's what evangelize means. You see what I'm saying? So I'm taking her response and moving that into the definition. The definition is not just about what I do, but evangelism becomes what I do plus. It describes not just my part, but also their part. No. Their response is not what makes it evangelism. And so that was like the our responsibility part of the sermon. Now let me close with the God's encouragement part of the sermon. Or it could be called God's comfort. And this we see in verses 9 and 10. This is the God that we serve, people. He appears to Paul in the night. This is verse 9. And he says, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. In my notes while I was preparing for this message, I wrote down, Lord, thank you for giving me the encouragement that is needed. Thank you for giving me the encouragement that is needed. And maybe there are many of you that would testify about that in your own life. God, thank you so much for giving me the encouragement and the comfort that I needed when I needed it. Because God encourages Paul with this vision. And I believe he will do it for you. And, and, and when I say that, I'm not saying that he will encourage us in the exact same way that he encouraged Paul, that it will always be through a night vision, okay? Um, Paul had experienced, I think he's a somewhat unusual character in the Bible, and at this point in the story, he'd already experienced at least two other visions. There was the one where he was on his way to Damascus, and Jesus appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me? And that was the vision that sort of caused Paul to become a Christian. And then later on, there was the one where the man from Macedonia appeared to him and said, come help us, come help us. And that's the way that Paul knew to go to Philippi. And so this is now sort of the third uh, vision that where God appears and says something to Paul, and maybe more than third, because there's the time that he was in Antioch and they sent him on the missionary thing. And I don't know if that was auditory or visual, but I mean, that could have been kind of considered a vision. And then there's something in Galatians that sort of sounds like a vision. So, and then you got this one now. So I'm thinking this is like three, four, maybe five times up to this point. God has supernaturally communicated to Paul in this way. But I do think Paul might be in an unusual situation. Most of the Christians that I know have had less than three to five visions from God, right? I mean, I, would, I think most of the Christians I know have had less than one. Like supernatural, God spoke to me and said, this is where you go next, vision. And so I'm not saying God will always verbally and supernaturally guide you in hard times. I'm simply saying this vision in this story, I think, reveals something of God's character. He's the kind of God that does what? He's the kind of God that encourages and comforts and says to his followers, you're going to make it here. I have many people in this city. You're going to be okay. I think it reveals something of God's character that he is a comforter, and an encourager. And I think that one day there are many of us in this room who will finish our race or will get close to the, the end of our race and we will look back and we will say not, I did it. <laughs> but that we will say, the Lord got me through that. And we must praise him 
and worship him for being that kind of God. So let me summarize this message. So just make sure you heard what, what you heard. The Paul shows up to Corinth. He talks to the Jewish people about Jesus. He gets kicked out and goes next door and continues to tell the Gentiles about Jesus. He stays there for a year and a half because as, as a result of this vision and this protection that God gave him in the town of Corinth. And in this passage, we learn we have a responsibility for what we hear. We have a responsibility to say the message that's been given to us, but it is not our responsibility to make other people respond. Their response is not our responsibility. And we also learn in this passage that God is a God of encouragement and comfort. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this passage. I pray that those of us who are in this room that have heard things from you either today or recently, that they would realize, oh, I am responsible. I don't get to just put that in the suggestion box. I pray that those of us who have a message to give to you, maybe people around us we know that need to know Jesus, I pray you'd give us the courage and the obedience to tell people about you and to not be so worried. What will they think of me? What if they don't? What if they say no? Help us to realize that's not on us. And thank you that you're the one that changes hearts and changes lives. Thank you that you are a God of comfort. I think that what Doug said earlier is true. There are some people who are having a great week, but there are some people who've just gone through some devastating things. And I've, I've thanked you multiple times this week that you are a God who encourages and comforts us in those times. And so I, I praise you and thank you for that again. And I pray that you would comfort and encourage your people this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.